Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Uh, good morning. Um, a great day. We had the terrible weekend. Actually, I lost trees. The my house down in um, not, I don't know if I should say where it is, but anyway, it's down on one of the beaches in Sydney Harbour. And um, the waves were so big they were breaching the wall. And uh, the waves, there's never any waves there; it's, it's harbour. But the uh, there was actually a surf coming in, and um, they breached two of my neighbours' walls, went over their walls into their pool. And one guy's building a pool and actually filled his pool up with sand. The next morning, the, the house was, the pool was full of sand. So I've never seen anything like this. Um, today I've got to go up to Merriweather. Um, something in Newcastle way, and um, I'm going to spend some time up there, you know, trying to have a look at what's going on there, and um, actually offer my assistance for anybody who wants any help up there. So um, I think all of everybody in Sydney and the rest of Australia, our hearts go for those people who have suffered, and particularly for those people who have lost anybody or have lost any property. But on a brighter note, we've got a great crew here today, and I'm going to start off start off with my mate James Kennedy. Hey, mate, how you going, right? Good mate, you. Good, thank you. Um, a lot of people who listen to this show are interested in um, building a brand. You're young in years, but you're an expert at building brand. I mean, you've come from that sort of heritage, the LK brand, which is actually your dad's initials, Louis Kennedy. But the LK brand is synonymous with jewellery and watches and luxury in, in Australia, particularly here in Sydney from my point of view. I, I can't comment on other places in Australia because you know, I haven't really lived there, but certainly here in Sydney from my point of view. And, cl- and clearly some of the brands that you're associated with and that you're a, a, a big distributor for, like Rolex and IWC and there's a whole lot of others, um, has given you great insights as to how important brands are but actually how organisations go about building brands. So what I want to talk to you today, mate, about is um, give me some perspective on, on the importance of brand, the messages of brands send and how do you maintain those messages. Um, you know, like, what, what would be the greatest brand you've ever worked with? Good question. Um Firstly, thanks for having me back. Um, oh, thanks, mate. Um, look, I think, you know, look, probably Rolex would be would be the standout. Uh, you know, in, certainly in the watch space, it's regarded as as one of the strongest in the world. 
they're, they're a business that it was interesting. Someone mentioned to me once that they could stop making watches today and never run out of money. They could stop well, production, stop their business and continue to have everyone in their employ and pay all their occupancy costs and everything associated with running the business. Um, that's a that, powerful brand. That's a powerful brand. It's a good yeah. way of measuring it too. Yeah, it's not bad. Not it's just not big bad. by just not based on who knows the name, but what sort of money does it generate? I mean, yeah. how does it work? So they're they're um, so interestingly they're not for profit organisation. So they're they're held in a trust. Um, so so Hans Wils, Wilsdorf, who, who started the company uh, in the very early 1900s, uh, had no children, so he passed away. Um, left the company to his wife, and then his wife subsequently left it in trust. So they're they're a company that gives back a lot to. You know, to the arts, and and you know, spends a lot of time, uh, you know, around philanthropic endeavours and various things like that. Last year, they recorded a six billion dollar uh, revenue line, which is not bad selling one product. Um, the only other watch company to beat it was Apple, with wow. the Apple Watch, um, and that's quite interesting. Uh, and that's probably a good way to digress into if we're going to talk about brands. Um, you know, Apple. Originally, the, the thought was, you know, what is Apple, how is Apple going to impact the Swiss watch industry? Um, and ultimately, I just don't think it's impacted at all. I think it's a completely new revenue stream. So that's an interesting thing. You mean it's a new product? It's a, it's a new product. It's not competing. I mean, it's a new product that never existed. So they've created $20 billion worth of revenue, you know, on a product that you know, really three or four years ago didn't exist. Or so not it, in the that's sense. an interesting point, James, because I was thinking about that when Apple came out and the others as well, but Apple in particular, um, it seems to me like the watch industry, your industry, um, repositioned itself as watch being a piece of jewellery. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, look, it did. Um, there, was a, there, was a, a, um, there was a big issue back in, just, I've got to go back now, the 80s when, so Swatch Group, or well, the Swatch Watch as you know it today, yep. was created by Amiga. So there, were, there was a crisis around um, quartz movements or mechanical watches. Everyone went to quartz, um, which is battery operated. And that's where Swatch Group basically came about. He, he uh, Mr. Hayek, who's the head of, uh, whose son is now the head of uh, Swatch Group globally, came up with this, this idea for this watch to compete with the market because really the watch market had collapsed. Um, and that, that subsequently turned into the Swatch Group. So, and then eventually, obviously, it, you know, most things are cyclical and it came back around and the Swiss watch industry, you know, came back and mechanical watches dominated again. But, you know, the, the, the difference, I mean, it's a completely different um, market between the Apple Watch, you know, and, and say a mechanical watch these days. So they created a new product that ultimately just created more, um, a brand new revenue stream, which is quite surprising. It didn't really impact the existing market. But what? Because because and I always thought, I never really thought about Swatch at the time. But by way of example, you just explained it, Swatch. But if, uh, the Apple Watch today, mm. I always thought it was going to disrupt. I just saw it as a total disruption of the watch industry. Everyone did. And basically, nothing's happened. I mean, I'm. I mean, I wear just. I, I have new watches, just new normal. You know, what mechanical watches? Yeah. I don't. I don't. I haven't run off and said, I've got to get a Swatch watch. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, an Apple watch. An Apple watch. I mean, I might have one, but, but it doesn't replace a watch as a, as a, as a functional well, it's a item. It's a, it's a different thing. I mean, it's like saying motorcycles replace cars. So if someone comes out with a new motorbike, then all of a sudden cars are going to be impacted. Now, maybe on some level that might be true, but it's very, very minimal. What I've noticed a lot is actually people are wearing both. So they're wearing an Apple watch on one wrist and... and you know, I'd argue that an Apple Watch is more, is more competition to a Fitbit 
as yeah. an example than it is to a to a mechanical wristwatch. It's like a, a, a wrist phone. Yeah, effectively. It's like something Dick Tracy would wear. Yeah, and, the old and get smart. The old get smart. Get smart, yeah. Uh, and, and, well, Dick Tracy probably going back a bit before your time. But, um, yeah, get, so like, it's get, like so get, smart. get smart. Get smart. Sorry about that. Jesus, I am getting old. But but, but, but it, is, uh, it is, you're right, it's like some sort of phone piece and it's not going to replace what, uh, um, uh, you know, Superman wears when he's uh, Clark Kent. Yeah. Well, you don't buy a watch. I mean, look, how many people buy a watch for telling the time? I mean, that's yeah. not really why you buy a watch. Well, I do. To tell the time? Well, I want to see what the time is. Yeah, but... I, I do because... But also the... The one why do you I pick choose, the watch exactly? Correct, okay. So I choose... Well, I, I mean, that takes it back to brand. I choose... I do choose a brand. I mean, you know what I choose. Correct. I've never seen Rolex, right? Yeah. And I choose those two brands because I love those two brands. Um, I love what they stand for. Yep. Rolex is the ultimate and... Ultimate in terms of stand, being standing the test of time. The ultimate in terms of what I consider to be luxury... Um, and um, I actually like, and I know the story you just told, and I like the story of Rolex. Yeah. I, I, so I have a deep respect for it. Therefore, I want a Rolex. Yep. Then in, within their own range, there are types of Rolexes that I want. And yep. I thought, well, they introduce new Rolex ranges Well, the aesthetics. The now we're getting down to the aesthetics and what it looks like. So how important are those things for a brand like Rolex? You know, like, I, mean, do, I mean, how much do they add to the brand, or is the brand preceded on any basis? doesn't matter. Uh, it's what I would call a... Almost a, a superpower. It's almost a superpower, I guess, uh, a brand like Rolex. I mean, the, the level of marketing and sponsorship and and what I find interesting about this brand and and when you look at this this push into the digital age and everything's digital and all the all these various things, 80% of what they do, 90% of what they do is above the line. Right. Print, billboards, outdoor, you know, various that, – that's how – and sponsorship. I think sponsorship is a, is a huge part of their business. So – you know, creating brand awareness, you know, it's, it's effectively if you look at, you know, everyone's heard of Coca-Cola and everyone's heard of McDonald's, but you're still seeing ads constantly all the time. So it's just creating a constant awareness of the brand and putting it front of mind. So you're saying the brand, the strength of the brand has everything to do with the brand, has a lot to do with the brand awareness because I don't think, I mean, I forget how much things, how many things Rolex do. They sponsor this. yachting, I think. They've got the Sydney to Hobart. In Australia, they've got Sydney to Hobart. They've got tennis, which also then includes Wimbledon and US Open, and they've also got the F1. Now, that's a global deal. I mean, what, the, the coverage you, you see, uh, you know, in Melbourne for the, the, the F1, I mean, it's just Rolex plastered everywhere. And then they do their ads and billboards and magazines. and Correct. So there's layers and layers and layers and layers. But it's all above the line. Their Instagram yep. account only came out about 18 months ago and it hasn't got that many followers. You know, so it's not about – for them it's not about the, the digital age. Um, Patek, Patek Philippe is an example, which is probably arguably one of the strongest brands in the world, has no digital – borderline no digital assets whatsoever. You know, they're, they're, it's a real old school way of advertising, which, you know, it's interesting – You've got arguably one of the most profitable businesses in the world that's bucked every single trend that is go- only going up in a time of supposed crisis, particularly in the luxury space and particularly all the pressure in China. And you know, the flip side of that is then you've got you know media outlets saying, oh, print's over, you know, that's not a way to advertise anymore, but that's all they do and they're still dominating the market. So, you know, are we listening to analysts telling us what, what, what's, what's actually happening? We're looking at fact and saying, well, here's a company that's profitable and that's doing it this way. So why, how can we sit there and say, well, that doesn't work anymore? Could it be a case that luxury brands need to have the underpinning of, and for those people listening, if you're trying to launch a luxury brand, I mean, luxury brands need the underpinning of uh, 
um, magazines, print, television, sponsorships. Yeah, everything above, above the line, yeah. Uh, everything above the line, whereas maybe marketplaces where someone's actually selling every brand yep. might be better off on the social. Look, I'm not knocking digital by any stretch. I think they're, they're absolutely two different businesses. Um, you know, another brand that, that, that I work with is Bang & Olufsen. Now, there's an interesting one. So I've gone had many arguments with my marketing team around they want to focus on tech and, you know, digital and all the rest of it. And I'm saying how many people who can afford a fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 television are sitting, you know, on CNET Googling you know the what, what, you know what the you know what the what the best TV and, and what the specs are and this and that. No, they care about what it looks like, how much it costs, and where can I get one. Yeah, you know, so it, it's it's different. Kerry Packard once said it, mate. That's good. It's, it, exactly. I'm, those, glad I'm, I'm glad I'm thinking those three words. Those he said, "Son, he said, forget about the fancy ads. Fancy ads. Tell them what the product is. Tell them how much it costs, and tell them where to get it." Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, he said, "You look straight down the camera, simple. you do it." Yeah. He said, "Don't don't go uh, you know, fluffing around all these sort of fancy <laughs> ads <laughs> and uh, you know the cost you're an absolute fortune to produce." Yeah, and someone else trying to win some sort of an award for it. Yep. Tell them what the product is, how much cost, where they're going to get it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it has to be that simple. When when I talk to marketing, it's a, to the marketing guys, it's around. I want to bring people in the store and sell product. Mm. Show me what does that. You know, and and trying to sit there and, and do blogs and, and various things for certain things just doesn't work. Well, how do you compete on something like Bang and Olufsen when they're sort of competing with? I mean, a B and O television might be I don't know ten grand or something like a big one. Yep. How do you compete? How do you compete with those um, TVs that are I don't know Samsung? Yep. It might be two thousand dollars, same size. Look, I think is it about the brand then? Absolutely. So I, I think to to your point before, what's underpinning? I think the ultimate thing, fifty percent of anything, is the quality of your product. So if you don't have a quality product, you can forget. You can have all the special marketing tactics in the world. It's not going to help you. So a brand, when you talk about brands like Rolex or you talk about brands like Bang & Olufsen, they, they're an incredible product. So when we took on the brand a year ago now, it's just come a year, for, for Bang & Olufsen, it, it wasn't front of mind. So it's going back to the point of why McDonald's and Coke still advertise to keep it constantly in your, in, in your thoughts. The same with Bang & Olufsen. It, it, it had died. So I could walk to 10 people on the street and they would say, I've heard of Bang & Olufsen. You ask those same 10 people, would you think to buy one? No, the answer would be no to majority of them. Good. can't afford it. No, it's not even they can't afford it. It just doesn't dawn on them to buy it. <clears throat> so you look at another brand like Hisense as an example. So Hisense, I still don't 100% know what a Hisense television looks like. Me but, but Hisense has spent a lot of money advertising. They went and sponsored uh, or named the uh, Hisense Arena in uh, next That's to right. Rod Laver yep. where they play the tennis and various things. So, you know, <clears throat> there's a brand that really no one had ever heard of, but it wasn't in someone's thought process to even think of buying it. You're going to buy Samsung because you see it. You're going to buy LG because you see it. Not to say you haven't heard because we could sit here and say there's a million brands that we've heard of, but it's not in our mind to go and buy it. Yeah. And that's effectively what we had to create with Bang & Olufsen, which is brand awareness, create that people are thinking about. When you think about televisions, that brand is at least in your five brands that you're thinking about so, buying. And that's interesting. Putting price to the side. Many years ago when I had the wizard business, we had um, we commissioned um, um, McKinsey to do a report, analysis on why do people choose, who do people choose when it comes to borrowing money. And they, and they come up, they said they choose three, three names. They choose their transactional bank. They've always been transacting with. It might be someone who your family have been banging with for the last 20 years. It might be Westpac. They choose 
one other bank who they've seen been advertising, who looks like they've got a good deal, and they choose one of the, the new players to see if maybe they get a real sharp deal. So they usually shoot, they usually have on their shopping list three organisations. Yep. No more. They don't do six. They don't do ten. Yep. They don't want to go and see somebody else to choose for them. They want to choose those, one of those three. And they actually go and talk to each one of those three. Now, to, and that was in the wizard days. Today, probably what happens is you get on the internet and you you converse yeah. with those three by just checking them out and seeing what the product is, how much it costs, what the maybe what the features are, how big it is. That's a good a example review. of the difference. So that that's where blogs and reviews, say in your space, is incredibly important. So, so people, you know, the Australian public, particularly when they're talking about mortgages and there's a lot of pressure on, you know, in that space at the moment. That's they're going to go out there and really search and and look up and understand when or what's the best deal. You know, it's interesting to your point. If you look at ANZ, Westpac, um, CBA and um, NAB, I mean, they all do effectively the same thing, to sit there and determine Rolex and IWC are completely different brands. Samsung and Bang & Olsen are completely different brands, but if you look at the four banks, they're not. So that's where that's where the, the, the marketing strategy has to be slightly different. You know, or Woolworths and Coles is a good example. You know, you've, they're all effectively the same types of businesses. So that's where creative marketing and trying to appeal to a particular person so with a creative a ad. Correct, to a particular group. And I'm sure they've got analysts sitting there working out, you know, the biggest, the biggest pools of the market and, what, you know, what, what area to grab and various things. But so that's where it gets slightly different on, on strategy because they're not underpinned by products necessarily. You know, they all sell home loans. Yeah. So there's no designer dollars, no Armani dollars. No, no, exactly. Dollars a dollar. Dollars a dollar. And, you know, then you look at pricing. So, you know, is it, and and does it always come down to price? See, I don't necessarily think it's always about price. I I think, you know, then it comes down to service and reputation and how you treat your customers and, you know, all those elements come into play. So, you know, you look at the whole marketplace and go, right, what proportion of people are going to only care about price? There would be a proportion out there. What's the next proportion that care about service? And you'd look at you can't and you can't appease everybody. So you've got to pick an area you want to head towards and say, well, okay, that's what I'm targeting. I'm going to be good at that. Correct. So if you want to be good, I'm a believer in service before price always. So if you've got a reputation of treating your customers with respect and delivering a good service, and you know you answer customer service calls and you do it in a timely manner and various things, I think that's going to set you up for a much better long-term outcome than than just being price-focused. Because when you are price-focused, you've got to give up something because you can't afford to run your business. And what you you know inevitably give up is your service. It's, it's interesting because I know, and I'll just tell the people who are listening, um, not so long ago I had to go to a function and uh, um, I, forgot, I left my watch at home and uh, the one I wanted to wear and I, I had to wear a, a dinner suit. And um, what I did was I, I, I mean, I may be a sort of unusual case, but certainly in the luxury environment, everybody's an unusual case. Everybody's similar to me. And I needed a watch. And I rang Rolex up, which is James' business here in Martin Place. They Not only do they get a watch for me to wear, they set it, they got the time, they delivered it to my office. I wore it, I went to the function, and then I delivered it back to their office before they were closed that night because I only went to the function for an hour and a half. I delivered it back to the office. I didn't want the responsibility of taking this really bloody expensive watch around with me, which wasn't mine, which is on loan. And that's probably what you're talking about in terms yeah. of service. Yeah, you say, absolutely. sure, someone like me, if I ring up, and probably more importantly that I know I can ring up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like a lot of people think, oh, shit, I've, I've stuffed this. I better get my car and drive home and get it or send someone to get it. Um, but you, you're, you, your guys would already let me know if there's ever an issue, you want something. And someone like me, I'm a punter, I'll say, well, to my office, we'll ring up 
Rolex to find out if I can borrow a watch for the night. Yep. And it was a punt, but I actually thought that was sort of the service that someone like, you know, your own environment would, would offer. Now, if we're now that's luxury. Not to everyone. No, no, no. <laughs> but it's all a bit of luxury buyers. Yeah, no, absolutely. But if you take down a scale, let's say somebody's listening to the show and they're looking at setting up a brand. Mm-hmm. They can't do that. You know, where, what would you say to them in terms of building their brand? I mean, everybody wants to build a brand because well, anyone in retail who's dealing yeah, with consumers want to build their brand. I mean, you guys, when your dad started his business in Double Bay, Louis. Yeah. Um, well, like, he started Guy Mesh. Guy Mesh. Okay. Guy, well, okay Guy Mesh, start, there's, a, there's a brand absolutely 100% from scratch. What do you, I mean, you probably don't remember because you weren't even born at the time, I guess, no. but, but do you have any sense of how he sort of went out promoting it? I mean, how did he do it? Did he do it based on service? Was it based um, on what mum was doing or what was it happening? Yeah, no, I think, I think back then, so it was more in the manufacturing space. Um, you know, I, I also think, you know, from the stories my dad told me, the way, the, 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 the ease in which it was, the ease, the ease in which you could do business back then is a lot, is a lot different now. It was it, easier. It was much easier. There, it, it was handshakes. It was, you and know, was my, my dad. My dad went, did a deal with Solly Lou to sell glow mesh in, in Coles, or you know, at the time. So that's my dad and Solly sitting there at Cosmo in Double Bay having a coffee, shook hands, and said, "We've got a deal." I wish we could do business like that today, but you can't. You got lawyers up to wazoo. You got contracts, you know, that are 150 pages long, you know, and that's just to give you directions to go to the toilet, you know. So, I think the challenges now. You know, they're, they're, there's a lot more red tape. It's a lot more difficult. Unfortunately, people aren't as, you know, they're not as solid to their word as they maybe maybe once once were. So in that sense, it was deal-making. You know, it's building relationship with someone and, and, and doing business and doing deals. Today, it's different. It's, it's, there's more mechanics involved. You've got to be more strategic. I think today, really, you've got, again, if you're going to start a brand product, make sure you've got a good product. And then from there, you, you've got to build brand awareness. You know, I think, you know, it's not about, you know, if you're talking about fashion, no, it's not about necessarily the design. I mean, I've seen so many brands that I think are quite ugly, you know, as a product um, that, that are incredibly successful. Um, and, you know, different markets want different things. You know, what, what a Chinese, if you look at a brand like Prada, what they buy for their Chinese Prada stores is very different to what they're buying for their Australian stores because the, the market's very different. So I think ultimately, look, creating a good brand, creating good brand awareness um, and, you know, again, and going back to probably what my dad did, building relationships. So if you're going to start a brand and you want to sell it somewhere, you've got to build that relationship with someone at, say, like a David Jones or a Meyer, if that's the, the, the avenue you want to sell it in, and build that relationship and get that deal. But it's a slow burn and you've got to be patient. You've got to be patient. You've got to invest. If you can't invest money, you've got to invest time yep. and effort. Absolutely. Yeah. One last question. Of all the brands in the world... Not just ones you deal with. Yep. What do you reckon is the best brand in the world? I mean, it's a big oh. question. What, what do you, what's the if I had children, up? that's like asking who, who, who's my favourite child. Well, no, but, who, but who is the standout brand? Well, give me one or two, but just um, pick one. I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think. Look, I think Apple. You'd yeah. have to say Apple's up there. You know, they were a, a brand that were about to collapse. Um, he, he was the epitome of, of what I was talking about before around not about tech blogs. He created an experience. He created an, an incredible retail environment. He created incredible packaging. It was about the aesthetics of his product, and that's what he turned a grey box into a, a, a lit up orange box. Correct, and, had a, and gave a good experience. And and and, and, and then really was the, was the technical, with the specifics or the mechanics of the, the system any different? Probably not that much. So I'd probably put that up there. Um, and honestly, I'd probably put a brand like a McDonald's or a Coca Cola. I, I think they're they're a business that just 
never seem to have too many issues. They run for a long time. They've had all the all the naysayers of, you know, it's bad for you, you can't have it, it'll kill you, it gives you cancer and all the various things that they managed to, to, to move through those tides over time. So I think, you know, they're, they're your stalwart. And, of course, Rolex, if, you want to, if you're talking about the luxury sort of space. Thanks very much, James. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Tyson. Hey, Mark. How you going, mate? Very well, thanks. I'm going to talk to you next. Great. Um, we're right in the middle of King's Cross. And I'm looking down William Street. And if I was looking down that William Street five years ago at one in the morning, that street would be full of cars, p- banked right up to the top to Park Street there, re- coming up this street, ready to turn left into the cross because that's where they're all heading to to hang out. But now that's not the case. I'll bet you any money if I came here Friday night, there would be maybe five or six cars turning left into King's Cross at 2am or 1am in the morning. What do you put that down to? Well, absolutely, it's the lockouts, you know. I mean, like, that was uh, a a series of uh, legislations that came into effect that was essentially designed to do that, uh, which is quite unfortunate, you know. I mean, we were talking about uh, entertainment precincts and having uh, having them be safer, but rather than making the entertainment precincts such as King's Cross safer, we just decided to get rid of them altogether and take the entertainment out and completely flatline all the activity that goes on in those areas. So um, that's... So they fucked it up. Absolutely, yeah, that's what they paid for, they got it. Tell me what your deal is. Why are you here? Okay, all right. Well, look, um, I run a group called Keep Sydney Open, which was originally born out of the music industry because we could really see how a lot of the businesses around the music community would be heavily affected by the lockouts. But, of course, it's really broadened out since then. We've seen in the last couple of years that not just venues have closed down, of which there have been plenty, but there's also been restaurants, news agents, retail stores, cafes have closed down in this area because because it's completely taken the uh, the attractiveness of coming into this inner city area out. Instead, people are just going to places where they can stay out until late, where they're accepted. For example, places like the casino, places like in the Inner West or Double Bay and Bondi Junction, or they're just staying at home. So it's just moved? Yeah, absolutely. So Because yeah. people are still going to go out. I mean, you go down Double Bay now, it's, it's pumping at midnight, one or two o'clock in the morning. I don't understand what the difference between Double Bay is and what King's Cross was. Um, so, you, you, so the bottom line is, you're campaigning to get these lockout laws changed because the bottom line is, and this is a show about small business owners, it's fucked up a lot of small business owners. I mean, I, that Barrio Chino, my, one of my oldest, my oldest sons said, Dane, he said, Dad, you should try the Mexican, it's really good. So I rang up there, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, on a Monday or a Tuesday night, and um, I got, and no one answered, I was going to get takeaway. And I looked at it and uh, went on the website and said, look, we don't have Monday, Tuesday anymore because we can't, for lockout laws, we can't get enough people here. We're losing money in a good business. And also, is it really? Yeah, it's not even a bar anymore. Okay, it's a yoga place now. The Nick Nick would know that. Barrier Burger. And, and, and like, I mean, it's, it's not only a problem for the small business owner, it's a problem for me, the consumer. I've lost some choices. And I, I've lost the opportunity to even try it out. And... Uh, you know, and it's, so, and I think everyone keeps saying about the small business. Small business that strip down there in Kings Cross. If you drive down there now, there's four lease signs everywhere. You go down here in Bayswater Road, same thing. So, but it's not just the small business owners; it's all the people, for example, live around here. They now got less choices. Now, I've got some buildings down here in Darlinghurst, 
um, and hotels, etc. And they've been affected as well by those lockout laws because it's actually spread out because we need traffic, we need people. And I've never seen, we never had a brawl down there ever. We never had a blue, nothing. Never had a a minutes problem down there. So I don't really understand the what's behind all this. What do you think it is? Well, um, ostensibly it's about safety, but really it was going about trying to achieve that objective in completely the wrong way. Essentially, you've got people who aren't really that well-versed in crime prevention and social behaviour and uh, and urban planning, weighing into an argument about how to get people to behave a little bit better. But uh, essentially what they're saying is, oh, we'll just send people home early and then that'll solve all the problems. But uh, that's not the only way to go about it. That's a really blunt instrument to try and achieve those aims. Was it politics? But, was it politics, or was it hugely politics? It? It's hugely politics, but also there was a lot of media hysteria as well. So you've got uh, the two major newspapers within this city, pretty much. Uh, uh, singing from the same song sheet, whereas us- usually there'd be a point of difference. But uh, but after a couple of really high-profile media cases of people getting punched uh, really hit the public um, um, a sphere, uh, essentially both of those papers mounted a campaign to try and get something done, but instead of having a reasonable conversation where there was procedural fairness, where all the business owners, where the music industry, where the taxi industry, all those other peripheral industries were consulted, instead they just came down on top of it and then that's why we're here two years later. Do you think they'll reverse it? Um, I don't know if they'll reverse it, but I think what they'll do is they'll definitely have to scale it back in some way because it's not just the businesses that have suffered, but it's also this whole city and how it's viewed Culturally, in overseas markets. Absolutely. You know, I've done interviews with CNN, Huffington Post, BBC, USA Today. People around the world know about what Sydney is now. It used to be a work hard, play hard city, and it's not that anymore. And now you've got all these backpackers, tourist travellers who are coming here and realising that it's not the fun place that it was sold as to them when they were trying to work out where they would go on their holiday. And now they're just going to other places. They're going to Melbourne. Have we, have we got wowsers going on? Have we got wowsers running the city? I mean, what's going on? Yeah, look, um, I think um, I think you've got a lot of people with um, with common interests all kind of conspiring. Hey, come on, don't, don't be nice. Have we got wowsers? Oh, absolutely. Have the wowsers taken over? Oh, look, there is no question about that. And, you know, some people would say, oh, fair enough, there's wowsers because there's all this violence going on. But when you have a look at every single statistic, whether that be crime statistics, youth drinking statistics, they're all going down prior to the lockouts. You know, essentially these young people now are better behaved than almost any other generation before them. You know, they drink less now than at any other... Um, they take more drugs, though. Uh, not necessarily, actually. In, in, in fact, in terms of uh, amphetamines and marijuana, actually the consumption's gone down. Which drug do they take more of? Um, I would probably say... Um, I would probably say something like ecstasy, probably. Cocaine. Uh, I, I don't know about that. I think maybe cocaine was probably bigger in the 80s. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Does anyone in this room know about that? No. Well, there was a story the other day that the, the Double Bay, there's been more arrests in Double Bay in the past few months of cocaine possession than there's ever been. So, again, it's moved from here to... Yeah, it's going to happen now. Me. I mean, it doesn't you, surprise me. You can't me. be in any state. You can't go around prescribing to people how they live their lives because they're going to live their lives somewhere else. I mean... That's sort of like impacting people's freedom to make choices. And if, yeah, absolutely. If we make dumb choices, we make dumb choices. You can't walk around and say, well, you won't make dumb choices in this quadrant because that's okay, well, we'll go make up somewhere else. And then as a result of that outcome, you know, when I was a young bloke, um, Bayswater Road here was called the Latin Quarter. Up the back, just 
in front of Potts Point, between Potts Point and King's Cross there, there was a club called the Roosevelt and it was a really cool club. People came to King's Cross for entertainment. They came here to listen to music and they came here to, uh, you know, this is where you came after, after dinner and you'd have some supper up here and you'd chill out and you'd, it was sort of groovy sort of joint. Now, of course, it got a little sleazy during the Vietnam period and, um, you know, a lot of drugs came into the, into the environment, but there was still, still, it is still a place you're coming to get entertained. And it's a real bloody shame that it's dead now. Mm. And I got this gut feeling that they're pandering to the developers because I think what's going to happen is we're on the top of a hill here. If you go down that strip there and you look west, you look straight at the city, look at the Harbour Bridge, look at the Opera House, and, you know, and they're all three-storey buildings. I just got this feeling someone's going to come and mow all those buildings down and put a whole lot of residential development up there and some bus is going to make a, f- a fortune. It's already happening and the Auditor-General actually did an assessment of the value of commercial properties, particularly on the uh, Golden Mile here in King's Cross, and it's all gone down. Meanwhile, residential properties and development has gone up. Do we want to live in a city where you can't make noise, you can't go out at night, and all these areas that were once homes to uh, entertainment, people being able to enjoy themselves, celebrate birthdays, uh, pay rise, whatever it is, uh, just apartments everywhere, apartments everywhere, you know? Do we want to live in that city? And I don't think we do. So do you think there's, and I guess what I'm trying to work out here, is there some sort of undercurrent of... uh, um, um, politicians or powerful people trying to change the fabric of King's Cross for their own ultimate gain, their own uh, ultimate benefit? Look, Because um, people jump on the bandwagon as soon as they see an opportunity. Look, quite frankly, I'm pissed off. I don't own any property down there. I own it down the other end. Um, I would, and I, and I thought to myself, God, I wish I had gone and bought some stuff during the, uh, during the heyday or had gone and bought some stuff when it first got announced, the lockouts, and the property prices were low. In fact, we bid for a hotel down there. Theo Honorsvaru actually outbid us. But, um, and I didn't really think to myself that there was great big, a great deal of property development potential. Like you can make millions. There's this thing here at the Crest, this Crest Hotel. Um, some Chinese consortium owns it. They're selling apartments there at record per square metre prices and they're all sold. It's not even built. They're just doing the renovations now. And they've sold off the back of it's going to become a, a residential environment. They're bringing basically bringing Potts Point up to here. Mm. Um, and the wowsers that I'm talking about, by the way, come out of Potts Point. Potts Point now, Potts Point was edgy, cool, trendy. It was a good, good place to go. Potts Point now is boring, totally boring. And it's expensive because it's pandering to the rich people who come from, you know, they, they retire, they sell the big house in Dremoyne. Empty nesters. Correct, and they move into Potts Point And, I mean, you know it straight away when you walk down McClay Street and there's five Botlows, five liquor stores. I mean, where do liquor stores ever survive? There's five liquor stores in a space of 200 metres and they're all selling French wines and uh, Iberico uh, prosciutto, you know, everything's super expensive. They've got a super expensive Woolworths there as well. You know that there's that, that, that's a, a rich area and as unfortunately, I'm in the age group, by the way, we bring boredom to edgy places, my age group. And that's what I'm worried about is going to happen to King's Cross. You need an edgy part of a city. The city's got to have an edgy piece. Yeah, that's right. And also all of the confidence has been taken out of the business sector where people would want to invest money into risk-taking and innovative businesses. So when almost every single regulation in the system is stacked up against you, if you want to open a club or a bar or maybe a record store which turns into a bar at night time, you know, all of these things which they have in other cities that are a little bit interesting, uh, they've completely um, pulled the rug out from all of those businesses business models. And so the only way that you can make money 
is to develop it into a residential business. And so it means that the risk-taking there um, uh, as, as an operator is gone. And so, as you say, as a consumer, there's less things around that's on offer. Yeah, it's, it's a real shame. I mean, I, that Top Hat and Cane environment of King's Cross, an evolved version of that, um, a city like Sydney, which is like, you know, we, we rely on our tourism big time in the city, and, you know, we own a hotel down the road which relies on tourists because, you know, I, I, you know my son, my older son runs that. Um, you know, we need people to come to stay in Darlinghurst because this whole area is supposed to be, you know, a cool area to be in. They've got nowhere to go to. They, you know, they're always asking at the reception, oh, where do we go to tonight? Where's somewhere that's cool? Where's music? I get it. Get rid of the you – know, you have to get rid of the vice and the prostitution and the drugs. I mean, I, but there's always going to be a little bit of that around. And, you know, maybe the bikies, you know, don't really need a whole lot of bikies sort of sitting around. Yeah, too many strip clubs. Yeah. Too many tattoo parlours. Clean a bit of that up. That that, that would have made the difference. But yeah. the, it was a, you're right, James. It's the pa- tattoo parlours. No parlors. one gets belted. <clears throat> and I live in Double Bay, across a pub. I never hear an issue, ever. Because you know why? They don't, you're right. They and don't have a the, lockout. They're still, they're still... They don't have the tattoos. Yeah. They don't have the tattoo parlours. They don't have the bikies. And they don't have all the strip clubs. That's what should have got banned. Yeah, not and, not and, and locking and them out. stop serving alcohol. You don't have to have a lockout. Just stop serving someone when they're pissed. Yeah. How hard is that? Yeah. yeah. A bartender can't see a person, literally can't hold themselves up yeah. if you want to give them another yeah. Jim Beam and yeah. Coke. Get them a taxi and send them up. But all of these, all of these solutions that we're talking about really requires a deeper conversation rather than just saying you can't go out after this time. You know, particularly when 99.99% of the people are well behaved, they're there to have a good time. And when you're only um, referring to the what's left, that 0.001% of people that would want to punch on on the weekend, you know, what kind of society is that where good people are shut out of enjoying the city? Yeah, so I can't go and have a drink after 1 o'clock. What time, what time, what time, what time is well, it's it? Well, it's 1.30. Well, that's... Yeah, where you can get Like in, in bloody Greece, you don't go out to 1.30. No, that's right, you know. And, you and can't get a meal before 11, 11 p.m. We've got the climate for that here, you know. We are in Asia, you know. It gets dark, especially with with, with uh, daylight savings, very late at night. It's hot and balmy in the summertime. A lot of people have dinner. The restaurants close at 10, 10.30 and then you want to go out. And then they're saying, oh, you've only got two hours to do that. You know, you work hard, you work those extra hours, but then you've only got two or three hours to enjoy yourself on a Friday night. You know, it really is quite insulting to people who Tyson, are very well behaved Who, who are these self-appointed moral dietitians? I mean, I'm well, that's who right. are the faces of these yeah. people? What, are, what do they look like? Yeah, well, look, um, I do actually sometimes sit around a meeting with some of these groups and look, they do tend to be people that sometimes they don't even have families or children. A lot of these people are people that are um, that that are older. That, um, as you say, they've moved in from other places. A lot of these people haven't lived here for 30, 40 years. A lot of them have lived here for under a decade. Um, but uh, but also there are a lot of people within the health lobby groups as well that also have that 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 common interest as well. Look. People can have their different agendas. That's fine in terms of whether it's a conspiracy. There's no smoking gun there. But all of that's irrelevant to me. The fact is, is that if we can actually work on best practice solutions and we work on the basis that we all want safer streets and that we all want to enjoy this city both at nighttime and daytime, then we can get somewhere because ultimately you don't have to shut people out to get safer streets. You know, why is Caracas less safe than New York City? It's got nothing to 
do with whether New York City has a curfew or not. It's got everything to do with all those other social elements and political elements um, that go towards creating that city, you know. So let's so let's actually have a serious conversation about this and not hurt the well-behaved people and not hurt the businesses that are just basically trying to get by. Fuck it, I want a revolution. I want, I want to take all these, these wows on and turn it on its head. I want to do what Matt Barry's doing. I love what Matt Barry's saying. Let's rip in. I'm sick of it. Yeah, well, we'll get there, you know. Basically, there's a review happening in August. The government's going to respond to that. Um, I've got an organisation which has um, well over 50,000 people um, who have signed up online in the petition and the Facebook group, and uh, we'll hit the streets if we don't get what we want. Good luck to you, Tyson. Thank you. You've got the right first name anyway. You're into a fight, mate. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You should see this guy. He's about six foot six. He's he's got muscles bloody everywhere. He's full of tats. He's a scary-looking dude. (laughs) This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Listener.